Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And we continue going through this book. We are now in verse 10. Our sermon this morning will be Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. read together God's word. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord, we delight in your testimonies as much as in all riches. We thank you for this time now to hear your word and to meditate upon it. We desire to Meditate upon your statutes and fix our eyes on your ways. And we need your help. Help us to fix our eyes upon you. Help us to fix our eyes upon what your word is speaking to us today. That we might be willing and obedient, not refuse and rebel. For these words come from your mouth. Help us to receive them. Give us your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, you are all familiar with the image of a stain. You know what a stain is. You have probably had many of your things stained. And stains ruin things. Uh, many years ago, someone bought me this very nice Bible. 
It's a very expensive Bible. And I decided that I would read it in the mornings using this Bible. Uh, and so I had my coffee. And maybe like the second or the third day, I was drinking my coffee and somehow my arm got knocked. I, I don't remember if somebody hit my arm or if I hit it somewhere, but my coffee spilled. And here it is. Here's the stain on my very, very expensive, nice Bible. And there's nothing I can do to get rid of this stain. So from that day on, I decided I'm using this Bible to preach. I'm not going to read it from it in the mornings. I'll use another copy of the Bible. You've probably had things like that happen to you. Uh, you get stains on your shirt and it ruins the shirt. And so you try and try to get the stain out. You go and you buy stain removers and you scrub and scrub. And many times uh, it doesn't work. You can't get the stain out. So you understand the, the metaphor that the Bible uses about a stain and how stains can ruin things. And I think you also understand how sin is like a stain. When you sin, that impression of sin and guilt is stained upon you. If I were to ask you right now, even if you who are Christians, if I said to you, what are one or two sins from your past that you really regret and wish could go away? I bet just me asking the question immediately in your head, there have popped up at least one thing that you can remember, that you, you still have these feelings of guilt about. Because sin is like a stain. It stains your conscience. It stains your assurance. It stains your relationship with God. There's a reason Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Because Christians still have these feelings of guilt, even when we are Christians. Christians can know that objectively their guilt has been dealt with, that Christ has paid for the punishment of their sins. But it's not until we get to heaven, it's not until we see Christ and are perfected in glory, that we will be rid completely of those subjective feelings of guilt. Because sin still stains us. And yet we see in this passage God's great promise that he will remove the stain of our sins. Objectively, the guilt of our sins can be dealt with. And one day, subjectively, when we get to heaven, that guilt, that feeling of guilt will one day be removed. This is the promise that we have here in verse 18 that we look we'll look at at the end as we go through this passage but first God through Isaiah talks to the people of Judah about these other ways that they try to remove the stain other ways that they might try to get rid of the guilt of their sin and it's through a false worship 
They think that just through doing these rituals of sacrifices, that that in itself will make everything go away. And so we want to look at this passage and see how maybe we also are like the people of Judah. So let's begin. Uh, We'll start looking at verses 10 to 15, this first part uh, that we could call revolting religion. Religion that is revolting to God. Isaiah, on behalf of God, begins with a scathing rebuke of the kingdom of Judah because they are hypocrites. Last week we saw that they were an immoral people, laden in iniquity, covered in sin. Their whole head is sick from top to bottom. They are, they're full of sin. They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we see in these verses that these immoral people are religious people. They are full of sin, and yet they continue to do religious deeds. And so Isaiah begins in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's calling on them again to hear, as he did in verse 2. And now he's calling them again, Sodom and Gomorrah, like he did in verse 9. And he adds in here that he's talking to the rulers, elders, priests, and maybe other leaders of the nation. They're immoral, and they are leading the people into corruption. And so here's what he says. Now let's read all of verses 11 to 15 again. It all goes together. He denounces their hypocrisy. He says in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You see, in these words, these are strong words against the people. God detests their worship. God hates these sacrifices that they come and offer to them, offer to him. Now, you might ask, well, why does God hate them so much? What's wrong with these sacrifices? If Isaiah is preaching this sermon and, and he says on behalf of God in verse 12, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? I picture some guy raising his hand meekly. Uh, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, didn't God require us to bring these offerings aren't these sacrifices commanded by God in the law of Moses see they're not adding anything to what God has commanded they are doing the sacrifices that God instituted the burnt offerings the new moons the sabbaths the convocations we we talk a lot in the new testament about the pharisees and how the pharisees were adding to the law 
That's not what's happening here. These are people who are fully obeying the Mosaic law. And so sometimes Christians will will read these passages. They will read the Pharisees into this. They will read their own culture and understanding of Christianity. And they'll say, you see, God is against religion. God doesn't like our rituals. What God only cares about is your heart. Just as long as your heart is pure, you can worship God wherever you want. We don't need church. You don't need to give money. That's all just organized religion. That's all just man-made stuff. God just wants your heart. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. That's what people often say. But God here is not against their religion. He's not against the ritual itself. What he's against is their immorality. The fact that they think that these rituals and religion will cover up and and excuse and allow them to continue in lives of immorality and unrepentance. We could say that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were necessary, but not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. Even Moses himself, when he's commanding them to offer sacrifice, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, he says over and over again, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what the sacrifices are supposed to demonstrate, is the fact that you are sacrificing, and that you are having communion with him, and that you love him, and that's why you bring these sacrifices. And so what the people are doing here is they are just offering the sacrifices without the heart, and with lives that are full of sin. Hebrews 10 says that the sacrifices were there to be a continual reminder of sin. So in other words, when you go and you have that goat slaughtered right in front of you, you're supposed to stop and think, that was my sin. Just because because I decided to commit that sin, now something has to die in my place. It's a reminder of your sin. And so you would think if you went through that process, you'd say, well, I should, I should stop sinning. I should stop sinning because my sin requires death. But here, the people got it completely backwards. They thought if they could just bring their sacrifices, then their sins are covered. So that now they can just go on sinning. We can live however we want. It'll be okay as long as we do the new moons and the Sabbaths and bring our burnt offerings. So I can live my life full of immorality and just bring some sacrifices and everything will be okay. This is the attitude that God is against. And he's not just against it. Look at the strong words again. He he hates it. He says in verse 14, my soul hates these convocations and these sacrifices we could say he's saying i hate this with all my heart that's what he means when he says my soul hates it 
It's like verse 12, a, a trampling of his courts. The trampling is just an image of a bunch of people crowding around in the temple and bringing all their goats and sheep. And you can just imagine all the loud noises. And God is saying, it's all just noise. You're just trampling on my courts. It's noise, noise, and I just can't take it anymore. I cannot bear all these gatherings of a bunch of hypocrites. All you immoral people just gathering to pretend in your worship to me. He says, your incense is an abomination to me. Sodom and Gomorrah had their own abominations. You're like them and your incense is just an, as an abomination as Sodom and Gomorrah was. The sacrifices, the Bible says, when, when Noah offered a sacrifice, it was an aroma that was pleasing to God. And he says, this aroma is an abomination to me. It's not like Noah's sacrifice. It's not pleasing to me. And so this is a reminder to us First of all, how seriously God takes his worship. God hates false worship. And so we want to take seriously how we worship God. We're not to worship God besides anything else that he has commanded of us. We pray, we sing, we give, we read the word and we preach the word. And that's it because that's what God commands. He doesn't want anything else. And so we're not to come up with imaginary things to think how we might enjoy worship or how we might please God. We don't worship God according to images. We just worship him by his word. If God hates true worship, uh, and it's the sense of worship that he has commanded, if he if he hates this worship that he has commanded, but it's done by immoral people, then how much more would God hate worship that he hasn't commanded, that is made up according to our desires and our imaginations? And so first of all, we need to take seriously the type of worship that we bring before God. But then, it's not just doing the right thing. Praying, singing, reading, preaching. You can do those things and God can still hate your worship. The problem, as I've said, is their immorality. He makes that clear in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is how, how the people of Israel would pray. They would Lift up their hands. Paul says, 1 Timothy 2, men, lift holy hands. Lift up your hands in prayer. And they're lifting up hands that are full of blood. They're murderers, especially the rulers, most likely. They are, they are murderers. They are doing injustice. People are dying uh, and the blood is on their hands. And yet they come to the temple and they pray to God and they think God will accept their prayers. And he says, I hate your prayers. I don't want you to pray like this to me. Because your life is immoral. So what do they do? What should we do? 
stop worshiping? Don't come to the temple? No, that's not what God's going to say. No, he says, stop sinning. Stop the immorality. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Verses 16 and 17 are repentance. But that's the solution. Stop your immorality. Don't stop the worship. God commands that everyone worship him. The unbelievers. The unbelievers down the street are commanded to praise and thank God because he gives them life. He provides for them. And instead, they respond by ignoring him. And by ignoring them, him, all they're doing is making themselves more and more and more guilty before God. So the answer, if you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an immoral person. I got a lot of sin in my life, so, so I better not come to church. I better not pray to God because then God will hate my hypocritical worship. No, that's not the answer. No, you are still required to worship God. You are still required to praise and thank him. But you're also required to stop your life of immorality and your sin. So how does this apply to us? Well, for those of us who are members of the church, uh, I don't want to feel like I'm beating you up. Uh, it's not the purpose of the word of God is to, to beat up those who are in Christ. Those who are members of this church, we take membership seriously. And, and we know, we, we would know, if you were living a life of immorality. And we would rebuke you for that. And we would do something about that. So the scathing rebuke that Isaiah gives is not to the church of Christ. It's not to true believers. For us, though, we can still learn from these things. We can still remember that we need to confess our sins, that when we do come to worship, it's appropriate to confess our sins together as we begin our worship. Maybe as we sit there a few minutes before the worship service, we pray, we confess our sins again. And it's not because Christ hasn't forgiven us of our sins. We know that he has. But we want to remember that we come to God through Jesus Christ and it's through the righteousness of Christ that he accepts our worship even though we are sinners. And that's the reminder for us who are true believers. There may be others here. There may be some here that maybe you are here because you do think that you're a Christian. And I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that you might not actually be a true believer. In other words, you could be a hypocrite. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there is a list of these kinds of sins of immorality and drunkenness and reviling and swindling and theft. And he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are sins that if you are continuing in your life of sin and immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a true believer. But you come to church. You can sing songs. You can listen to preaching. You can read the Bible. And yet you haven't dealt with your sin. You haven't dealt with your immorality. Is that you? 
Is your life marked by sin and immorality? Then you need to seriously question if you are truly a believer. And you should not put your confidence in the fact that you do these religious things. You do these external duties. I come to church. I give money. I pray. God says, my soul hates those things. If you are an unbeliever outside of Christ, full of immorality, you should still worship God. You should still pray. But you must turn from your sin. And that's what we get to now in the second part. Radical repentance in verses 16 and 17. If we come to worship God with immoral lives, then the answer here is to repent. God says in verses 16 to 17, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In two verses, we have nine commands. Nine things that we must do. Nine things that for Israel and for these rulers of Israel, they would show their repentance by doing these things. And it's summarized in wash yourselves, Make yourselves clean. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Turn. That's what the word repentance means. It means to turn. Stop what you're doing and turn and do something else. Cease to do evil. In one sense, repentance is a matter of your will. You can talk about your physical proclivities. The way you were made, the way your body is, the the temptations that you face because of who you are. You could talk about your nurture, the way your parents raised you, and all the temptations that come through what they did well or what they didn't do well. You could talk about all the things that have happened to you. All the financial struggles that you've had that have have led you down this course of life. You You can blame all the circumstances. And we can all do it. We can, we're all very good at blaming and coming up with our excuses. The question is, will you cease to do evil? Will you stop? Will you turn? Or will you just give us a bunch of reasons why it's so hard for you to turn? Everyone here knows it's hard to stop sinning. But God calls us to cease to do evil and learn to do good. How are you going to repent? You must learn. Just as a a kid learns math by being taught math and practicing problems, doing problems over and over again, page after page, that's how you learn math. Some people seem to think that someone with a sinful nature is just going to one day wake up and not struggle with sin at all. How do do we turn from darkness to light? We must learn to do good. You must put forth effort 
You must practice hard. You must learn. You need to study the word of God. You might need to read other books. But you're not going to just lay there and say, God, get rid of my sin and it's just going to go away. No, you must also put forth the effort to learn to do good. This is why it's easier to do the external things. It's relatively easy to show up to church once a week and to think that you're being religious. It's easy to go through a rote prayer and pray a prayer. To God, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, the kingdom come. And then you say, well, I pray. It's easy to do external things. It's easy to fill a church with 10,000 people because you can get people to just come to church But what's hard is to get 10,000 people to cease to do evil and learn to do good. What's hard is holiness. And so we must put forth the effort. But notice here that this command to turn is also something that is enabled by God. God has to give us the ability to do this. And we see this in verse 16 with this image of washing. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Wash yourselves. If a a muddy boy comes into the house covered in mud because he's been playing outside, his mom is going to say, son, you need to go wash yourself. And so the boy goes to the sink or goes to the bathtub And what does he do? He turns on the water. So, how did the boy get clean? Did he wash himself? Did did he make himself clean? Or did the water make him clean? The answer is both. The boy has to go and wash himself, but it's the water that washes him. And so we see all over in the Bible this both. You're responsible to obey the commands of God, and yet you need the enabling of God. You are to work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. And with this washing, that's that's how it works. Titus 3 says to the Christian, you were washed. Washed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Who washes you? The Holy Spirit washes you. But doesn't he say here, wash yourselves? Yeah. So what you need is the Holy Spirit to come and make you new and make you clean and give you the ability and the desire to wash yourself so that then you go and you of your will that is enabled by the power of God, you turn from your sin and live in holiness and righteousness. So if you feel unable, well, that's right, you aren't able. Unable to turn from sin. What you need to do is beg the Holy Spirit to make you new. Beg the Holy Spirit to wash you. Beg Him to give you a new heart because you so badly desire to wash yourself and make yourself clean. The Spirit washes you, then you repent. So you must repent. 
If you want to be a true believer, if you want to be a Christian, a Christian is someone who repents of sin. When Jesus preached the gospel, he said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel, repent and believe. Jesus said in Luke 13, verse 3, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You understand what's going on here? Your eternity, your, your eternity in hell is at stake based on whether or not you will do what verse 16 and 17 says. Will you wash yourself? Will you cease to do evil and learn to do good? If you have a life full of immorality, it is a sign that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must turn. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So turn to Christ and turn away from your sin. Well, then we get to the last part of this uh, passage in verses 18 to 20 where God invites us to reconciliation. You have to understand verse 18 first, in light of verses 10 to 15. Remember the strong words of Isaiah, God. You are an abomination to me. I hate your worship. I've had enough of this. And yet, then he says in verse 18, Come, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. That word now is sort of like our word please. It's as if God is saying, Would you please come? Won't you come? It's more than just a command here. You know, he said in verse 16, wash yourself. That's just a command. This is what you need to do. You better do it or you're going to go to hell. That's basically what he's saying. But now he invites. Now he pleads. Come now. Won't you please come? And here's the great grace of God here. Those who are a stench in God's nostrils. He invites, please, with them to come. If you are the one who offends someone else, you should be the one to go and make it right if you know that you've offended them. If I borrow your car and I go and crash your car, it would be natural for me to come and, and very apologetically say, I'm so sorry, I crashed your car, this is really bad, and I need to make this right. What can I do to fix this? I've caused you lots of trouble. You're just trying to help me. And I've messed up your car. What can I do? And yet here is God, the offended one, who is going to the offender. And he's saying, can't stand everything you do. Your, your worship is an abomination to me. But, but I want to make this right. I don't want to be at enmity with you. I want us to deal with this problem. So he says, come, come now. And then he says, let us reason together. This word for reason, it doesn't mean he wants to sit around and argue philosophy. 
Come on, let's reason about whether I exist or not. It's not that he wants to get into an argument. Come on, let's, let's get into a big argument about who's right here and how we can deal with your abominable worship. No, uh, this word reason is an image of the courtroom. The idea here is that God wants to settle a dispute. Come now, there is a dispute between us. Let's settle this. That's actually the way the NIV translates it. They translate it as, let's settle this. That's what's going on here. Just like when companies or, or people might, might sue a company because of something they've done wrong or they perceive it's done wrong. Companies will go to court and they will come to a settlement. Now, in human terms, usually the settlement is, yeah, we know we're guilty, but we want to get this story out of the news, so we'll just settle this. That's not what God does, but that's the image of a courtroom to come to a settlement. How can we fix this? How can we make this right? God could sue you for all that you have. God's response could just be, after verse 15, I hate your worship, you're full of immorality, all I'm going to do is condemn you to misery forever. That's it. That's what you deserve. I don't owe that to you. I don't owe anything else to you. But instead, he says, let's settle this. Now, God, when he says that he is coming to a settlement to deal with our sin, he is not going to sacrifice his justice, but he's not talking about how that's going to be dealt with here. Uh, we'll see later. We know later that this comes through a sacrifice of a, of a perfect man who is also God. We know that's coming, but that's not what he says here. Here he just says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you how, to, how I'm going to do it, but here's what I'm going to do. Here's the settlement that I invite you to. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Your sins are like scarlet and crimson. These were dyes, D-Y-E, dyes uh, that you would put a fabric in to make it these colors. And so you would immerse the fabric into the dye and the dye would stain the fabric permanently. You can't scrub out crimson out of the crimson fabric. You can't get rid of the scarlet. It's immersed, it's stained, it's permanent. There's nothing you can do about it. This is what God says your sins are like. When you sin, that moment you sin, you are guilty. You are condemned with guilt. You are, you are going to bring shame upon your conscience. That's how it is. And there's nothing you can do to wash it away. There's nothing you can do to get rid of it yourself. These people would understand this. They would understand you can't get crimson out of a fabric that is crimson. But God promises something incredible. 
that something so deep red could be white as snow, bright white, white like wool, that, that original wool fabric that was cleaned off and purified, and it would be shining white before it had been dipped into that dye. It can be just like it was before then, shining white, something that no human being could have possibly done. But God's saying, this is what he can do. He promises that that stain can be removed, that that guilt that no man can get rid of can be gotten rid of. And remember, we're in a courtroom here. So we have the, the textile factory, we have a woman dyeing a fabric, and we have the courtroom, and we have both images being brought together. So what God is talking about is justification. A guilty person can have a settlement, can have a dispute settled so that they are no longer considered guilty, but they are considered white as snow, like wool. The guilt and the stain of sin is completely removed, and instead they are declared righteous. So in the courtroom, the sinner whose sins are like scarlet is given righteous robes that are pure white. And this is a picture of the forgiveness of sins. The guilt of your sins can be totally done away with. This is the forgiveness that God invites all sinners to come and receive. So what do you do? He says in verses 19 to 20 as he finishes. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he invites you. He offers you the settlement. He offers you the forgiveness of your sins and says, you must receive it. You must be willing and obedient to receive it. He doesn't mean here that by being willing and obedient, you're somehow working off your sins, you're, you're earning your good standing with God. That would be total nonsense in the context of the whole passage. He can't stand their, their uh, attempt to earn obedience with him. No, it's not about trying to earn your favor with God by obedience. Willing and obedient just means do what I say. Come. I'm telling you to come now. So come. And you'll eat the good of the land. You will know the blessings. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. The judgment will come upon you. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word declaring to you the facts. If you come, you will be forgiven. If you refuse, you will be judged. So what about you? Maybe some of you who walked in today thinking you were a Christian, thinking that you knew the salvation of God, 
thinking that your sins were already forgiven, but maybe you realize your life of immorality and that your life of immorality is a sign that you are not truly following Christ. Why would you refuse this invitation? Why would you not cease to do evil, learn to do good? Why would you not wash yourself? Why would you not turn away from your sins? Why would you choose death and judgment and eternal misery when God says, come? Come and that stain, that guilt that you know you can't get rid of. Stop trying. Stop trying to cover it up. Stop trying to make excuses. Acknowledge that the stain of your guilt is there and come. And God says, I will make it white as snow. I will forgive you of your sins. You will be declared righteous by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you that you are the God of grace who continually invites sinners to come to you. We thank you for how you've revealed your grace in Jesus Christ. That he is the righteous one. He is the substitute on the cross. He is our mediator. The only way for us to come before you. Lord, open our eyes that we would not rest upon our own attempts to cover our sin. That we would not deny our guilt. But that instead we would come to you in Jesus Christ. May we arise and go to Jesus. Knowing that he is willing and able. And he will embrace us in his arms. We ask these things through him. Amen.